Well, good morning. It's a, it's a beautiful July morning. It's not often we start off July with 60-degree weather on a, on a Sunday morning, especially. Today, it's, I'm sure it hasn't escaped anyone's notice, is the 4th of July or Independence Day here in the States. A uh, day where we celebrate the founding of this country. It's unique to America is the fact that compared to really any other nation, it was founded upon an ideal or a concept. It was inscribed in our Declaration of Independence. It's running throughout the Constitution. And it's the ideal that was certainly influenced by Scripture. And it's that all men were created equal, endowed with, by their Creator with certain inalienable rights. After the founding of the country, it didn't mean the job was done, though the groundwork would lay, was laid. Be another 85 to 90 years before it was even more fully realized with the end of slavery, the Civil War. And yet we celebrate the foundation that was laid and the ideal that had been set. It's the reason that the Frenchman, Alexis de Tocqueville, said that America was exceptional. He didn't say America was perfect. In fact, it's far from perfect but it's because it was founded on an exceptional idea, an idea that was grounded in Scripture. Well, as unique and as exceptional as America is, this morning we return to our study in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 9, and as we do this, as we get into this study, our attention and our focus is going to be once again drawn to the hope and the promise of a kingdom that surpasses even the most exceptional nation or kingdom the world has or may ever see. One in which we will see the reversal of sin and death. One in which we do not have to wait, hope, or work toward the ideals of justice and righteousness, but one in which they are realized immediately. One that assures that truth and justice and righteousness always prevail. Something we long to see. We wish we could see today. If you have your Bibles and you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 9, we're going to read together Matthew 9, 27 through 34. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came up to him. Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, It shall be done to you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him throughout all the land. As they were going out, a mute, demon-possessed man was brought to him. After the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed and we're saying, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees were saying, he casts out the demons by the ruler of demons. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for the opportunity we have to come this morning to celebrate together as we already have the fellowship through your sacrifice through the death, through the resurrection of your Son. Thank you for the teaching that we get to look into this morning, the reminders it is of the coming kingdom as the dawn begins to rise, as those first beams of sunlight begin to shine 
forth from the coming of the kingdom to give the hints and the promises and the hopes of what was offered to Israel and what we still long to see, which is the establishment of this kingdom. May we long for it and look forward to it with excitement. May the promises, the miracles, the works of Jesus Christ as we see them faithfully memorialized for us in Scripture give us hope and excitement about what is to come. Is it solidifies and firms up our faith. Help us to apply your word this morning in your name. Amen. Well, this section in Matthew concludes Matthew's introduction to the messianic ministry of Jesus. If you were to go back to the beginning of chapter 8, you remember 5 through 7 was the Sermon on the Mount. 8 through 9 contains these three sets of miracles. Some look to break it up as three sets of three. And it begins to conclude the presentation of Jesus as King, as Messiah. And in doing so, in verifying the message of his ministry, it also faithfully solidifies in our minds the promise and the hope of the kingdom that's to come. And next week we'll look at the summary and preparation for what ends up ultimately being the rejection of Jesus' ministry by the very persons he came to. But here in these verses, we see two miracles which put a final stamp upon the announcement and the nearness of the kingdom and the promise of Jesus' messianic coming reign. And the nearness of the kingdom of God is seen here in the temporary reversal of the effects of the curse, because that's what's promised with the kingdom of God, that we will see the effects of the curse of sin that are upon this world, this death, this disease, this suffering, will be reversed. And so as Jesus comes, as he begins to talk about the nearness of the kingdom, it should be no surprise that we begin to see the beginnings of the reversal of the curse through his ministry and his miracles. Nothing like this had ever been seen in the history of Israel. It's never been seen in the history of the world. The quality and quantity of of miracles that Jesus was now working was unlike anything that anyone in history had ever been able to work. While there had been miracles, specifically in Israel's past, nothing compared to what they were seeing. In verses 27 to 28, Matthew continues with the story of what was going on that day. You remember last week as we looked, we saw two other miracles grouped together. Miracles of a woman who had been hemorrhaging, who was a virtual leper in the community for 12 years had exhausted every resource she had, had become not only a virtual leper, but destitute. And yet Jesus heals her. And then we see the raising of the official's daughter from the dead after she had passed away. And the promise as well, even the subtle promise that it was merely sleep. In other words, we will all again rise. Well, the day wasn't done. Matthew says that as Jesus was returning to the house, it doesn't say which house specifically. It's likely the house he was staying at, which we we know earlier he had been staying at Peter's house. Remember, he had even returned back and healed Peter's mother-in-law who was sick. So he's likely returning to Peter's home. And as he was returning there, there were two blind men following him. Now, the text doesn't say, it's silent about this, but you can only imagine what it was like for blind men to try and follow someone through the narrow streets of Capernaum. Perhaps following the noise of the crowd, I mean, how was it that they followed him? 
Perhaps Jesus was teaching or talking as they went, so they listened for his voice, trying to make it out. But as they go along, I mean, there's crowds, there's the potential to trip over persons, over the uneven streets, to get lost in the winding paths as they made their way back. But they continue to follow him. But these blind men themselves did not follow in silence, far from it. They were calling out, yelling at the top of their voices, Have mercy on us, son of David. Additionally, the grammar indicates they didn't just cry this out once, but they were continually calling it out as they were following him. Maybe they took turns. One would call out, then the other. The entire time they're following him, they're shouting this over and over again. Have mercy on us, son of David. Well, their persistence pays off, but it doesn't pay off until they reach the house. They're able to gain entrance to the house. They're even able to approach him. And it was then, as they came toward Jesus within this house, that Jesus acknowledges their presence. Up to this point, he hasn't acknowledged them. He acknowledges their presence and their cries. And how does he respond, or what does he say to them? He asks if they believe that he's able to do this. Now, it may seem obvious, we've probably assumed some things about this text, but let's stop and ask, what is the this? What is the this that he's asking if they believe he's able to do? We might infer right away that, well, these are blind men, so surely the this is their blindness. That must be what they're asking about, right? The problem is, that's not what the text has said. That's not what they've cried out. They've been asking for mercy from the son of David. So what is this mercy from the son of David? What is this specifically that they're asking for? If they wanted to be healed from blindness, they could have cried out, please heal us from this blindness. But instead they asked for mercy from the son of David. So what does that imply? Well, we've already firmly established in our study of Matthew that the title son of David is messianic. That is, it refers to the Christ, to the promised son of David, who would arrive to save his people from their sins, foretold throughout the Old Testament, who would reverse the curse of sin and death, establish his kingdom, rule and reign in righteousness, justice, peace forever. Even the Pharisees knew this. Matthew 22, 41, Jesus questions the Pharisees. And he says to them, it says, well, now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. And here's this question. He says, what do you think about the Christ? Which is just another title for Messiah. What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they, that is the Pharisees, said to him, the son of David. It was recognized, whether it was from the religious leaders down to the poorest beggar, that this expression, son of David, was a reference to the Christ, to the Messiah, to the one who would reign as king over the coming kingdom. It was likewise known that the Messiah was of divine origin. It was God incarnate. This was not simply a courteous or polite title that the blind men had conferred upon Jesus or were conferring upon him. It wasn't a title you just used out of respect for just anybody. It was one that was pregnant with meaning, with significance and authority. Notice, too, the irony here. Up to this point, only a limited number of persons recognized Jesus' authority and kingship. Very few recognized it. As we looked at the crowds, remember Jesus had left the crowds desiring to get away from them. You remember why that was? 
It's because they so misunderstood his ministry. They were there for me. What can I get out of Jesus and his miracles? How can he help me with my present situation? How can he help me with this life now? Far too few understood either his message or his ministry. And yet here, it is the blind who are able to see. It is the blind who recognize and are able to perceive and proclaim the Messiahship of Jesus. It's not the seeing who perceive this, but those who can't see. And these blind beggars, begging was the common occupation of one who was blind. They couldn't work in hardly any other occupation. These blind beggars have more insight and a better perspective around who Jesus is than all the seeing crowds and religious leaders. That's fascinating. This spiritual insight by the blind men, it's not lost on Jesus, which is why he asked the question he does. Do you believe that I can do this? But again, to understand, we must identify what the this is that Jesus asks about. What are we to make of their pleas for mercy? Was it simply a plea that they would be able to see, that blindness would be healed? Or is it something more? And to do this, you've got to get out of your mind a little bit what might first come to mind when you think of mercy. Instead, we need to put on our biblical lenses, and we're going to take a trip into the Old Testament to do that. Throughout the books of Isaiah and Psalms, we see the promise of the Messianic son of David. And the term that was used for mercy here in Matthew 9.27 is the term eleos. It's the Greek term, and it's used several times number of times, a couple hundred times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And I want to read you some of those passages where he uses the same term for mercy. One of the things that you'll find if you were to do the study and to cross-reference the translation of the Greek Old Testament and the use of eleos and where it occurs, you would find it most frequently replaces where you find the Hebrew term chesed, which is translated as loyal love, loving kindness, faithful love. It speaks to the covenant faithfulness, the salvation faithfulness of God. Listen as I read some of these passages, and what I'm going to do, just to help simplify this, I'm going to replace the term eleos, where it's used, with mercy. In Isaiah 16.5, we read, a throne will be established in mercy, and a judge will sit on it in faithfulness in the tent of David. Moreover, he will seek justice, and he will prompt in righteousness. Isaiah 54, 8. In an outburst of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting mercy, I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Psalm 18.50, he gives great deliverance to his king and shows mercy to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. Psalm 23.6, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 25.7, do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember me. For your goodness' sake, O Lord. Psalm 31, 7. I will rejoice and be glad in your mercy, because you have seen my affliction and have known the troubles of my soul. Psalm 31, 6. Make your face to shine upon your servant. Save me 
in your mercy. Psalm 33, 18. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on the hope, on those who hope for his mercy. Psalm 51, 1. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your mercy. According to the greatness of your mercy, blot out my transgression. Psalm 103.4, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with mercy and compassion. And Psalm 103.11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. If we were to make a list and to categorize the themes and the concepts that surround the use of mercy, specifically when speaking of the Messiah, the themes that jump out to us, our sin and forgiveness, salvation, the hope of a king who rules in justice, one who lifts us up from our affliction, who gives us hope. But it is all centered around mercy over sin and the hope of salvation. You may recall the story of the tax collector and the Pharisee from Luke 18. When Jesus visits the temple with his disciples and he observes the Pharisee sitting there, standing there, saying, I thank you, Lord, that I am not like these sinners. Specifically, that sinner, that tax collector over there. But do you remember what the sinner says? Be merciful to me, O God, a sinner. So let's be clear. What was it that they were asking for? These men may have desired sight, but that's not what they were crying out for. Unlike the crowds gathered around seeking a sign or a wonder, these men came not longing for the things of this world, but for that heavenly city, for the salvation and the life to come. That is what they were asking for. That is the this. Do you believe that I can do this? Do you really believe that I can forgive your sins, that I can grant to you the hope and the promise of the coming kingdom and all that's associated with the mercy of the Messiah? They came asking for forgiveness from sin. They wanted the mercy, the loving kindness of the Messiah, the anointed one, the Son of God. They were certainly acquainted with the promises of the Messiah, that he would reverse the effects of the curse, but they didn't come asking for that. They came asking for the nearness of God to dwell in his presence forever. Thus it is that Jesus looks at them and says, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Do you believe I'm able to pour out upon you the mercy and the salvation promised in the Old Testament that I'm able to forgive sin? And how do they answer? Yes, Lord. Their desperation over their spiritual condition made it so that if they had only one thing they could ask of the Lord, it wasn't for temporal healing. The one thing they ask is that they could, like David, dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Titus tells us in Titus 3.5 that it's because of Jesus' mercy that he saves us through the washing, the regeneration, the renewing of the Holy Spirit. We went through the Sermon on the Mount and we looked at those Beatitudes that provide that gateway, that opening that sets the standard, the pattern for what a disciple of Jesus Christ looks like. 
And it describes one who is poor in spirit. This is poverty of spirit. Where you're not nearly as concerned about your temporal afflictions, your temporal difficulties. They are real. They are difficult. They hurt. You are all here this morning with different pains, different difficulties, different struggles in life. Those are real. And in a moment, we'll see how the Lord deals with that and the compassion, the gentleness, the faithfulness of the Lord. But true poverty of spirit washes from your mind everything else other than crying out for his mercy over your spiritual condition. We must train ourselves to be attuned to our spiritual need. And then go to the one that we know can answer this. And cry out to him as these blind men did, Lord, submit to him as Lord and Savior. And then what does Jesus do? He reaches out and he touches them. The compassion, the gentle. He wasn't, he wasn't himself blind to the fact that they were afflicted. But he touches them and says, it will be done according to your faith. That is, your faith has been made real. You've experienced salvation. And as the effect, the testimony, the witness to this, what does he give them? He gives them a hint of the reversal of the curse to come when he gives them their sight. He gave them what they didn't even ask for. But he gave it as a testimony to the salvation that had been wrought internally within them. All this and more was done for them. They received the mercy of God, and it was manifested in the reversal of their blindness. And by the way, this was one of the greatest manifestations of the power and the presence of the Messiah in the Jewish mind. You would think that it would be raising someone from the dead, and that was certainly amazing, but hey, we've seen that. We've seen Elijah and Elisha. As several commentators have pointed out, in Jewish thinking, the healing of the blind was viewed as the messianic miracle par excellence. It is their faith here, the faith of these blind men that is highlighted, specifically their faith in the mercy, loving kindness of God, visiting them in the Messiah, Christ Jesus. There's another point worth noting about these men. How was it that their faith was demonstrated? Well, certainly it was in their confession of him as Lord, but it was also in their persistence in prayer, in crying out to the Messiah. We see them following him through the streets. These are blind men, following, trying to keep up, perhaps stumbling and tripping. It was no easy task, but they persisted. They were not deterred by the difficulty. They were not put off by the initial lack of response or silence. In fact, Jesus himself was waiting until the appropriate time to respond, and they persisted. We see this characteristic of persistence, specifically persistence in prayer and faith throughout Scripture. And it's a reminder to never cease asking and praying. Because we don't know when, how the Lord will answer. Whether it's praying for a loved one, Praying for salvation for someone. Praying for a situation. Praying for health. Often the Lord will use the times of silence to highlight other things in our life. 
sin which we may not have confessed, to help refine our desires, to create within us a true poverty of spirit, to strip away from us everything else that might distract us from him, to prepare our lives for his answer. So observe the example of these men who persisted in prayer, knowing that the Lord will always answer. It may not always be the way we expect, but he will always answer and will always work things together for the good of those who love him and keep his commandments. And however he answers, whatever way he works, whatever he takes us through, is for a good that is greater than we could ever ask for. Well, now, if you had been blind, but you could now see, how would you respond? You'd be excited. You'd rejoice. We don't know for sure if these men were blind from birth or like so many others in the ancient Near East were afflicted with one of the many different diseases and uh, accidents, the dust, the debris that created blindness or loss of vision, whether they were seeing things anew or seeing them for the very first time, you can imagine the excitement. I also think it's somewhat telling and picturesque that the very first thing they saw would have been the Messiah. But if this has been done, you'd be excited to tell people about it, wouldn't you? I mean, you've been blind for a significant period of time. Someone has just healed you. You would be excited to tell them about it. Well, notice what Jesus immediately tells them. Now that their physical sight has been given back to them, he sternly warns them, see that no one knows about this. Their physical sight now matches their spiritual insight. Their eyes have been opened, but Jesus, having performed this miracle, that is the miracle par excellence of identifying himself as Messiah, provides this strong warning and this instruction. So I have to ask again, what is the this? that Jesus is referring to. It can't be the fact that he's working miracles. He's been working miracles publicly for months. So it's not that he's working miracles. It can't be the sending out of persons to proclaim the gospel. I mean, he sent out the demoniacs who were healed in Gadara across the sea just a few days earlier, sent them out into all of their land to proclaim the gospel. We see in chapter 10, he's about to send out the disciples to do that. So it can't be missionary activity that he's trying to restrain. So what is the this? Really, the best we're able to do is say what it's not. Perhaps the best answer is that Jesus is seeking to avoid further confusion over what was expected with the Messiah, the son of David, and that language specifically that is unique here. Messianic expectations in first century Israel were confusing. They were a mess. In the midst of Roman occupation, many of Israel's messianic expectations were myopic. That is, they were short-sighted. They were self-centered. It was selfish and confused. It was all about the here and the now. Again, that's, you remember Jesus, why he had to leave the people. And so perhaps until his ministry was complete, Jesus did not want to add to this confusion or be viewed as a political tool. But ultimately, we don't know the exact reasons. Again, we can just rule out a few things. Can I know for certain why at this point in Jesus' ministry, he desired them to remain silent concerning his identity as the son of David? We merely recognize that he does. 
What becomes interesting, however, is that the two blind men cannot help themselves and cannot contain the message of salvation and sight at the hands of the Messiah. Verse 31 says, They went out, spread the news of Jesus throughout the land. And we can confidently infer, since even while blind they were proclaiming it, that this news included proclamation around the messianic promises and fulfillment that was going to be found in Christ. But these were disobedient missionaries. The opposite of Jonah, who ran from his mission, they ran to a mission they weren't supposed to go and do yet. However, I want to point out that the emphasis here, while it certainly does identify that they went out and they were, in fact, disobedient, the emphasis is not so much on their disobedience as it is upon the near impossibility and the great difficulty it takes to remain silent when one is touched by Christ. And it provides a convicting point of application for us. If we have been saved, transformed, and experienced the mercy of the Messiah, how is it that those who were told not to proclaim so often do a better job than those of us who are told to proclaim? Not only should it be impossible for a true disciple of Jesus Christ to remain silent, but we have the added incentive or motivation of being commanded, instructed, empowered by the Holy Spirit to go into the world and make disciples. So as the follow-up, the question to ask, and this is, write this down, jot it down, think about this throughout the week. The question to ask is, how are we doing that? What does Canton Bible Church need to be doing to better fulfill this responsibility? What do I personally need to be doing to better fulfill my calling as a disciple of Jesus Christ? Well, Matthew continues. It's been a long day. There's been a lot of miracles, a lot of teaching, but he is not done. You can understand why Jesus would at times sneak away by himself. Despite the great works that have been done thus far, the miracles have not concluded. Immediately on the heels of the blind men leaving the house, we encounter Jesus' next miracle. Matthew says that as they were going out, that is, the two blind men, a mute demon-possessed man is brought to him. You can almost picture these two groups, the two men leaving and those who are ushering in the demon-possessed man brushing shoulders as one leaves and the other enters. Matthew wants us to clearly see these healings linked together, at least in the time frame. He doesn't want us to miss these healings. This all happened the same day as the healing of the woman who was hemorrhaging, the girl who was raised from the dead. In a matter of just a couple of hours, and we don't know what else he had been doing. He was already doing other things before they even showed up to take him away to the official's house that we looked at last week. But now, in just a matter of a couple hours, Jesus has raised the dead, healed a virtual leper in the community of the hemorrhaging woman, healed the blind, and as we're about to see, heal a mute and cast out a demon. Matthew doesn't record any conversation or interaction. This is a brief example of a miracle. The mute man was brought, presumably by friends, for the purpose of healing. And the emphasis here is more upon the healing of the muteness than it is even the demon possession. Both are of importance. Both have messianic significance. 
But notice the abruptness of the casting out of the demon. Verse 33 merely notes that after the demon was cast out, and others, oh, of course he dealt with the demon. After that was cast out, almost as an afterthought, then the mute man spoke. And it was at that moment that the crowds responded in amazement. It's really no wonder that in verse 33 the crowds are amazed, saying nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. There had been miracles by Elijah, by Elisha, by Moses and others, but never so many, never in such rapid succession, and never that all proclaimed the messiahship of the one performing the miracles. The crowds knew that something different was happening. It was unlike any previous experience of miracles in Israel. It's because it was the nearness of the kingdom and the king. The Messiah has arrived and God's promises are at the doorstep ready to be consummated. Turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35. Isaiah looking forward to the time of the Messiah. Writes through the Holy Spirit, beginning in verse... We'll begin our reading in verse 3, saying, Encourage the exhausted, strengthen the feeble, Say to those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Which, by the way, I'll pause. Does that sound familiar? What did he say to the paralytic when he was let down? Take courage. What did he say to the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years when he turned to face her? Fear not. Take courage. Continues in verse 4, Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer. The tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For the waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah, that is the dry land. Turn also to, back to Matthew, to Matthew 11. So just a couple chapters over from where we're at. When John, who was still in prison and not yet been beheaded, heard of Jesus' miracles, heard of the ministry, he sent some of his disciples to Jesus at the beginning of John 11. And when they arrived, he sent them with this message, ask him, are you the expected one? Are you the Messiah, the one that has been foretold? Or shall we look for someone else? And Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. And this is what he says in verse 5. This is what confirms the messianic ministry of Christ. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. That is the needy. Later in Isaiah, in Isaiah 61, Beginning in verse 1, Isaiah writes, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion 
giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. This amazement of the persons was in seeing the rays of the rising messianic kingdom and the excitement that began to come upon them. It was because of this excitement among the peoples, especially those in and around Galilee, that the religious leaders recognized that they needed to quickly douse this feverish excitement if they were to maintain control of the people and to continue profiting off the backs of the sheep of Israel. So in a bizarre twist and an absurd attempt at deception, these religious leaders seek to do anything they can to turn persons from and against the Jesus' ministry. We've already seen them at work trying to manipulate the disciples of Jesus. The contrast between the blind men and the Pharisees and even the crowd's amazement could not be stronger. And in this somewhat shocking response, the Pharisees decree that Jesus himself is now in league with Satan. I mean, they've really run out of ideas. Though he has no affliction, no indication of demon possession, the Pharisees cannot accept the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. And so the only other explanation that they can contrive of for these miracles, because they can't deny that it's power, so they have to make it some other sort of power, so they say he must be from Satan. The claim on their part reflects more their own patronage than Jesus's. Perhaps it was their familiarity with Satan himself that made them willing to make this claim. They are themselves instruments of Satan. They're of their father, the devil, seeking to deceive and spiritually enslave the people of Israel to legalistic religion that bears only a passing resemblance to true faith and true Judaism. Pharisees cannot accept that this power and this authority comes from God, so they determine that it must come from Satan. Their blindness their spiritual blindness is such a stark contrast to the spiritual insight and vision of those who are physically blind and afflicted. The Pharisees are on the defensive, scrambling, trying to control the people they've enslaved under their teaching. But the light is breaking in. The chains are beginning to fall away. And they make a desperate attempt to scare these people away from their reaction of awe and wonder toward one of fear and loathing. It's in this act of desperation that these false shepherds and wicked religious leaders bring upon themselves even greater condemnation. Isaiah continues to be a prophetic word for this time where God spoke through Isaiah condemning the religious leaders of his day for doing the exact same thing. Saying in Isaiah 5, 20-23, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. There's no better description for what they're doing. Who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. Who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes, clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink. Who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. There's a lot more we could say about the unbelief of the Pharisees. There's a lot more we will say as we continue in our study through the Gospel of Matthew. Before this morning, the one thing I want to note is something that clearly comes to the forefront 
of this passage and this rejection of the Messiah by these Pharisees. And that's when it comes to Jesus Christ, there is no neutrality. Switzerland doesn't exist. As C.S. Lewis said, he is either Lord, liar, or lunatic. When confronted with who Jesus is, you either submit to him as Lord or you reject him. There's no saying, well, he, might, he was still a good man. No, he's a liar then. And he's deceiving people then. That's not a good man. When faced the reality of who Jesus is, we have to make a decision. Will we respond like the blind men and submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ and make it our ambition to obey and to follow him? Or will we respond with the rebellion of the Pharisees? Do you recognize your spiritual blindness and poverty without Christ? Do you continually, as we observed in the Beatitudes, recognize this great poverty and need and that even as a disciple of Jesus Christ, your need for him is all-encompassing and never-ending? Your poverty is only assuaged when all of your attention, your focus, and all that you value is Christ himself. Jesus has come for the sick and the needy. But if you're like the Pharisee in Luke 18 who looks at others with contempt, thinking that you are healthy, saying, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like that sinner, then you've not experienced the salvation. You've not experienced the desperation of the blind men until you recognize your inability to do anything that pleases the Lord in your own power, you will continue to stumble about in darkness. Until you're willing to cry out, have mercy on me, son of David, you will be excluded from the kingdom of God. George Lansing Taylor wrote a poem. It's a short one. It goes like this. O Savior, we are blind and dumb. To thee for sight and speech we come. Touch thou our eyes with truth's bright rays. Teach thou our lips to sing thy praise. Help us to feel our mournful night and to seek through all things for thy light. Till the glad sentence we receive, be it to you as you believe. Then swift the dumb to thee will bring till all thy grace shall see and sing. In Jesus, the kingdom has come near. The dawning of the kingdom, the effect of the kingdom are reverberating throughout the land. But as we already know, the king will face rejection. A rejection in the sovereignty and the foreknowledge of God would lead to the salvation of the Gentiles. Till that day when Christ returns again and gathers together Jew and Gentile alike as he ushers in his kingdom upon this earth. And that's our great hope. As we celebrate today being July 4th, what is an exceptional though very imperfect nation still bound by sin, let that just cause you to long all the more for this heavenly kingdom where all will be made right. You see, you carry a dual citizenship. And really, the focus of your citizenship is in heaven. All that goes on on this earth is preparation for your time in the kingdom where truth and justice reign for eternity and all sin, sickness, and death are gone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning.
for the example set by these two men who you prepared for that time to leave for us an example of poverty of spirit, of an all-consuming focus upon you and eternity with you that makes even the most serious affliction in this life less. And yet, Father, thank you for the great display of compassion, of mercy that you give, reaching out and touching these men, of healing their affliction as a manifestation of that inward transformation that you wrought. Father, may our lives, having been touched by you, be faithful in proclaiming and making known your salvation, making faithful disciples. Help us to submit in every area, every aspect of our lives to you as Lord. And may the transformed lives that we live be a testament and testimony to those around us. As you look for us to make our lives a living and holy sacrifice, may they be acceptable to you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.